We resist God until He says it's enough. Amen? For 19 years, I resisted God. Until He said, that's enough. And then He became so irresistible, so loving, so gracious, that I could do nothing but serve Him and live for Him. God's grace is passive just for everybody. Maybe creating a possibility. And the reformer said, no, God's grace is not pathetic. God's grace is not passive. God's grace is violent, performative, powerful, and irresistible. It changes the heart of the sinner. Does anybody deserve heaven? Nobody deserves heaven. We all deserve God's wrath and punishment because of sin. Nobody's born good. As I said, not even the old, the cute old grandma across the street who makes so much for society, if she's not in Christ, she will perish in hell. What is amazing is that God's effective call is so triumphant in Jonah's story that he used a lukewarm, rebellious, and bitter preacher to accomplish his purposes. And let's read God's precious, infallible, powerful word in Psalm 65. Let's start in verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. You who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Listen to this. Blessed is the one you choose, and you bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You may be seated. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of your word. Your word is an extension of yourself. And that's why we stand up. That's why we have high reverence and respect and honor. Because your word is your revelation. It's coming from you. So now please speak to us, Lord. Help me to be faithful. As a faithful slave, I pray that I will be chained to your word. And I pray that as faithful slaves in this church, the ears of this Wonderful congregation will be pierced to the doors of your house, listening to your voice. So we cry out, ride on, O Lord. Make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart and from the heart to the life. As the rain returns not empty, so may your word accomplish that for which it's given. So speak to us, O Lord. Because of Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Amen. 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 Imagine with me, brothers and sisters, 
going back to the Roman times, and you were captured by Roman soldiers, treated as, as a treasoner, a betrayer of Caesar. Your punishment now, your punishment is to spend the rest of your life in the galley of a warship, chained to the oars in one of the most disgusting places in the world. Some of you have seen Ben-Hur, and you remember the scene. And now one day, as you are there, in that nasty, dirty, dark place, one day a Roman captain comes onto the ship, and he asks for the list of all these slaves who have been working in the galley. And as he gets the list, about 500 names, out of his own mercy, he chooses five names. He circles those five names, and he asks, because as he's looking at the list, he can see the names, the number of the seat, and the deck where the slaves were placed. And now once he has the names, he goes down into the galley amid the putrid, noxious, rancid smell. Everything around and underneath is filthy, full of disease. He approaches each one of those slaves that he chose and he calls them by name. Sam, he has the key, he unshackles Charlene, Jose. He unshackles you, brings you out of that nasty place, brings you up, bring you up into the fresh air, feeds you, and lets you know that you have been pardoned. But now you belong to him and you're going to be his bodyguard. You're going to serve him as his bodyguard. History says that these bodyguards were the most faithful, dedicated bodyguards of all. Do you know why? Because they were dead and now they're alive because of the Lord's mercy and grace towards them. Those slaves, when they heard the call of the captain, they actually heard the sweetest voice that they had ever heard. It was a call from darkness to light, from death to life. They could not refuse the call. So no wonder they became the most faithful and dedicated bodyguards of all. And you think about we, like those slaves, condemned to die in the dark and dirty galley, had our captain choosing our names and stepping down by grace in that nasty, death-infected galley and calling us by name and unshackling us and bringing us into his home. We, like those slaves, once heard the voice of the captain calling us by name, could do nothing but to serve him and love him and live for him and protect his name and reputation with all the might that we have. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, brothers and sisters. The doctrine of irresistible grace. When God comes down and calls sinners who are heading to destruction, condemned to death, and by calling us by name, He brings us into Himself. So, as we 
before we start the defining our terms, I just want to remind you what we are doing. We have visitors here. Some of you already forgot what you're, we are studying. And that's okay. Sometimes I forget where we are. But we are in a series of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist church. What does it mean for us here to be a Reformed Baptist church? And I know, I know that will vary. What does it mean to be Reformed for some people? What it means to be Baptist? And that's why I'm trying to bring historical documents to show what we mean by being Reformed Baptist. We have been seeing how the foundation of Reformed theology would be the five solas and the five points of the doctrines of grace. Those are the foundations that take us back to the Reformation. Reformed theology, brothers and sisters, as the name implies, go back to where? Reformation. And the Reformation was what? A going back to the Scriptures. Some people will say the Reformed theology is following all that Calvin taught. All that John Calvin taught. I would say no. Some will say the Reformed theology is to adopt all the creeds that were imposed during the Reformation. I would say no. Reformed theology means that we are going back to the heart of the Reformation. And the heart of the Reformation was bringing the Word of God back so people could understand that salvation was by grace alone. Matthew Barrett, he says, what distinguishes the Reformation, however, is that its deepest theological concern was the gospel itself. In other words, the, Re the Reformation was a renewed emphasis on right doctrine. And the doctrine that stood center stage was a proper under understanding of the grace of God in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we are seeing how the foundation of Reformed theology, as we think about what does it mean to be Reformed, Yes, there is much more than the five points, the five solas, but not much less than that. That's a great summary. Uh, some time ago, I was watching a video from Ligoniers. They were having a panel, and, and I think it was Robert Godfrey, and he disagreed. He said, no, the five solas and the five points of the doctrine of grace are not a good summary from the Reformation or Reformed theology. And I said, oh, man. If our C could hear you, you'd say no. Because our C, our C's pro, I remember an interview, he said that Reformed theology could be summarized with three words. He said, Reformed theology can be summarized with three words. Regeneration precedes faith. What does he mean? Some of you are like, oh. that's what we're going to see today. Regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, changing us by grace, by mercy, comes before we believe. We believe because the Lord has changed us. Amen? It's not, I know, Billy Graham had the book about being born again, and the whole idea is that by believing, you are born again. No, no, no. The Bible says that you're born again, therefore you can believe now. And that's what we're going to be looking today is these three words. Regeneration precedes faith. 
Or it could just summarize as salvation belongs to God. So as we are walking through this wonderful five points that glorify our God like no other doctrine, these five points of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints, we saw, we walk first through the T, and that's where man plays his role in this game. We play our part in bringing sin and condemnation. Amen? We bring nothing good. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. There is nothing good in us. Therefore we need, we need a God who must do something for us and in us. We need a God who is merciful and powerful. We need a God who must work for us and in us. And that's the first act of God the Father, the unconditional election. He does something for us. He chooses. Nobody deserves to be saved. Amen? Does anybody deserve heaven? Does anybody deserve heaven? Nobody deserves heaven. We all deserve God's wrath and punishment because of sin. Nobody's born good. As I said, not even the old, the cute old grandma across the street who makes so much for society, if she's not in Christ, she will perish in hell. And God, out of His grace and mercy, He chooses some to be saved. Nobody deserves. And yet, He shows His glory by choosing some. But election is not enough. It's not enough that God the Father chose some. He needs to do something else for us. And that's what the Son does. The Son dies in the place of those for whom the Father chose. So we have election, predestination, and then we have redemption. You see, just election is not enough. Just predestination is not enough. We need propitiation, redemption, atonement, reconciliation, justification. We need a perfect mediator. And that's what the Son does. That's the doctrine of limited atonement. But if you think about this two, the unconditional election and the limited atonement provided by God the Son, is, it's not enough. What? It's not enough? No. It must be applied into the life of the sinner. Amen? And that's where the role of the Holy Spirit comes. He applies the work of salvation. He applies the work of predestination and redemption into the life of the sinner. And that's where we come to the eye of the acronym, acronym TULIP, the irresistible grace, the work of the Holy Spirit in invincibly conquering us and drawing us and providing to us the work of the Father and the Son. Also is known as effectual calling. The call of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And here's the outline you're going to be following. We're going to see irresistible grace defined, irresistible grace verified, and then irresistible grace applied. So let's define our terms. We can say the irresistible grace defined. The doctrine of irresistible grace teaches that God's grace, 
God's power and God's will in salvation is greater than the sinner's hardness of heart. Amen? The grace of God in salvation is not passive. The grace of God in salvation is not apathetic. And that's why they wrote down these points. Remember the, the, the Synod of Dort as they are writing. It's not that people just want to say, oh, here's five points of Calvinism. No, because people were teaching five different points. And the students of Armenians, they were teaching that grace is passive. God's grace is passive just for everybody. Maybe creating a possibility And the reformer said, no, God's grace is not pathetic. God's grace is not passive. God's grace is violent, performative, powerful, and irresistible. It changes the heart of the sinner. That's why it's called a factual call. It has effect. It's powerful. Amen? So, we're going to define more, but I just want to let you know, irresistible grace does not mean, okay, does not mean that there is not a type of grace that we can resist. That, that over and over again during the day, we resist some sort of grace of God in our lives. What we are talking about here is saving grace. And also the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual call does not mean that people go to heaven or hell against their will. Because sometimes people think that it's just like this God's grace is this caveman who comes and beats you and just drags you against your will. Everybody in heaven is there because their will. Their will was changed. They embrace Christ. They believe Jesus. They treasure Jesus. And everybody is in hell because of their will. They want to be there. They don't want a Christ. So that's important to keep in mind as we talk about this glorious doctrine. So let's define our terms. Let's be precise here. Irresistible. What does irresistible mean? They cannot resist. You think about an army that you cannot stand against. You cannot resist. That's the meaning of irresistible. It means it's impossible to resist. It's impossible to stand against. It's invincible. It's not vague. It's not weak. It's not apathetic. No, it's powerful. And what do you mean by grace? And that's important because, as I said, theologians are going to define grace in different ways. So many theologians uh, split grace into two groups. We have uh, common grace and uh, special or covenantal saving grace. Common grace is the grace that we say that goes all over the world. So you think about God gives food, air to breathe, nature, rain, sun, family structure, government. All these things are God's gracious gifts to humanity. Amen? Government. Much better, a bad government than anarchy. Family. It's proved. Kids with some structural family will do better than others. It's God's grace in the created order. We have a restraining grace under common grace, where God restrains evil by family, by government. That's one group. Then we have 
what is known as saving, covenantal, special grace. And that's the one that we are talking about here. It's this covenantal saving grace that God has for some and not all. Grace in irresistible grace is the covenantal saving grace that God gives to His elect. The gracious calling of God when He calls His people out of darkness into light. When He calls His chosen ones from death into life. We'd say that's the holy invasion of God into our dark being. It's when God comes and invades us with His power and His mercy. And that's how Paul, if you study Paul and you read about Paul's view of grace, he, predominantly he talks about grace as not a gift that we can just take or leave, but as something that's so powerful that invades us and takes us over. Like an army, a mighty army. So grace is not merely an undeserved gift, though it is, It's also a transforming power. Grace imparts life when we are still dead in our sins. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that we we reject, we reject, we resist God until He says it's enough. Amen? For 19 years I resisted God until He said that's enough. And then he became so irresistible, so loving, so gracious that I could do nothing but serve him and live for him. So that's very important. Whenever God is pleased, he overcomes our resistance. Our sovereign king can let you resist his saving grace as long as he wants. But when he decides it's enough, he triumphs. He trumps over your hardness of heart. So the eye... You can say that the eye in the acronym TULIP proclaims that God's grace in applying the work of redemption on His chosen ones is impossible to be stopped or resisted by man. The work of salvation towards those whom the Father chose and the Son died for is invincible. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Otherwise, none of us would be here today. There are, let me just help you think through here. There are Different terms for irresistible grace. Some people don't, really don't like the term irresistible grace. I love it. I look at my life and I see how His grace was so irresistible. I could not stop. I tried. But He became so irresistible. I love that title. But we also call effectual or effective call. And that's something we see throughout, especially the New Testament, how we are the called ones because of the calling of God in our lives. And another uh, concept related to irresistible grace or effectual call is regeneration. Regeneration, to be born again. And we cannot separate effectual call or irresistible grace from regeneration. They are together. As soon as God calls someone out of darkness, He empowers that person to be a new creature. And you think about this mighty power of bringing life You look at the Bible and the instances where we have physical death and we have God's instruments bringing those people back to life, it's unstoppable. Think about Elijah bringing people back to life. You think about Jesus bringing the little girl back to life. You think about Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life. It's unstoppable. He speaks and the person has life. 
And it's the same in the spiritual realm. He speaks through the Ruach, the Spirit of God, and there is life there. Amen? So we, we can. We can reject the call of men. People reject the call of the preacher. But when God summons you, it's over. <laughs> you are coming. <laughs> and you love that. So if you believe that man is totally, completely infected, defected, and affected by sin, the eye of irresistible grace is a treasure. And it's the only option. That God changes us. He transforms our will. And here's, let's see, uh, the call, the call of God. And yes, there, as I said, there is an outward call that we can deny, that we can reject, but in the inward call of God is impossible for us to deny when He's calling us into salvation. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, Here's way, one way of describing Christians. Those who love God. There are only two groups of people in the world. Those who love God and those who hate God. There is no in between. I like Him. You either love Him or you hate Him. So for those who love God, all things work together for good. And now look at the heavenly perspective. So the first one is man's perspective. We love God. Here's the heavenly perspective. For those who are called according to His purpose. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. We love Him because He first called us to love Him. And then Paul goes on to say, look at that. And those whom He predestined, what? He predestined them, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. You cannot break that chain. He predestined, He calls, He justifies, He glorifies. And let me ask you, and that's an important question, brothers and sisters. Is everybody in the world called with this calling here? Is everybody called with this calling here? If everybody's called with this calling, then everybody will be glorified. So we see that there is a difference. There is a calling of God on certain people that leads to faith, that leads to justification, that leads to sanctification, that leads to glorification. And that's the call of God that we cannot stop, the irresistible grace. And that's why the reformers, they thought that would be important to, to, to differentiate the, the different calls that we have. So they would say that there's first the vocatio realis. That's how they, they said. The, the, that would be kind of a general call of God. Vocatio from where we have vocation, the calling Realis from the Latin res, things. So that would be the, the things that God used to, to show people that there is a God. So creation preaches that there is a God. There is order. The structure of the world history shows that there is a God orchestrating things. That's why the psalmist says the heavens declare, the heavens preach the glory of God. 
So there is this vocatio realis, where there is this general call, but this general call cannot save anyone. It does not proclaim the gospel. You know that there is a God by creation, but you don't know that there is a Redeemer, a Savior to save us and rescue us. That's why we need what they would call the vocatio verbalis. The calling through verbal actions, the preaching, the proclamation of God's Word. Vocatio realis is not enough. We need vocatio verbalis. We need the call of the gospel. We need people to hear and understand the gospel. How will they call upon the name of the Lord if they don't hear the gospel? We need to preach. We need to proclaim the good news. But even this calling is not enough for salvation. There must be another call. And that's where the reformers would say that there is the vocatio efficax. The effective, the mighty, the efficacious call of God in our lives. It's the vocatio efficax that only the elect of God receives. And the vocatio efficax, the effectious, effectious call of God, comes through, guess what? The vocatio verbalis. And that's why we preach, brothers and sisters. We do not know who the elect are. Our duty is to preach and proclaim and exhort and call people to repent. And God used that proclamation of the verbal to bring the effective, the powerful, the irresistible call that He draws people to Himself. There's always two preachers when somebody's preaching. Right now there are two preachers. You can see the visible, puny, powerless, preacher right here, limited in power, and there is another preacher preaching, and this preacher has a capital P, and he's almighty, all-powerful, and that's the Holy Spirit, and he's invisible, we cannot see him. Stephen Lawson says, I like how he says, he says, accompanying the human preacher, though, must be another preacher, who both stands with him and in him. The human preacher is only the secondary preacher, an instrument in the hands of God. There must be one primary agent, capital A, who takes the words of the human preacher and brings them home to the human heart. He says, this chief herald, this chief preacher is God the Holy Spirit, who silently, though powerfully, preaches in the voice of the human preacher. This Main expositor takes the audible sermon and brings it home to the depths of the human heart. This invisible preacher and only this evangelist caused the visible preacher to be effective in converting sinners. And that's why you guys need to pray for me. You need to pray for the preaching that the Holy Spirit will be blessing the preaching. Because just me standing blabbing here is nothing. We need the Holy Spirit to come. And he used that to change lives. So, that's what we see as we go back to Romans 8.30. The called ones. Those who love God are those who are called according to His purpose. And those who are called according to His purpose, He will justify and glorify. The calling of God effects, achieves, accomplishes what God requires. 
If God requires faith and repentance, it's that call that will enable the sinner to believe and turn away from sin. And it's, it's beautiful how this terminology of being called with this effective, this mighty call of God permeates the Bible and especially the New Testament. So as we come to the New Testament, one of the most used titles for Christians is not Christian, but it's the called ones. So I would refer to Sean as, hey, called one. Because that's how the New Testament refers. To remind us the grace of God in calling us out of darkness. It's a beautiful title. Hey, called one. Why? Reminds us that Christ called us, the Holy Spirit called us out of darkness into light. Think about the word church. We are the church. The Greek word for church is? Yeah, ecclesia, ecclesia, ek, kaleo, that's where it's coming from, called out. The church is the assembly of those who are what? Called out from where to where? From darkness to light, from death to life, from exile to God's presence. Think about even the name church reminds us that we are the ones who are the object of God's mercy in calling us out of darkness. So I hope that helped defining irresistible grace. We now need to move to verify. It's one thing to define that. Now let's see if the Bible teaches that. And I believe that the whole story, the whole drum of the Bible is one coherent story of a God whose grace and calling are irresistible and triumphant towards His chosen ones. So from Genesis to Revelation, we behold a God whose grace drags, pulls, and carries people, His people, out of darkness into light. Amen? So as we think about the Old Testament, let's walk first through the Old Testament. Right in the beginning, the first two chapters of the Bible, it tells us that God, through His calling out, through His words, He brought what? Creation into existence. That's important, brothers and sisters. He calls, we hear that the, the rock, the, the Spirit of God is there in creation. And God speaks, and there is something that takes place. There is creation. Because we need to keep that in mind because the biblical authors will use the first creation to speak of the new creation, what God does in the sinner by raising them from death into life. So right in chapters 1 and 2, we see this sovereign call of God in bringing things into existence, things that were not. And it's not like God could call the animals to exist and suddenly the animals say, no, no, I'm not going to exist. It's irresistible. He can't stop his call. And we see in, in Genesis 3, after the fall, that God is the one who calls Adam. Adam, Adam, where are you? So from the fall, we see that only those whom God calls first can now call upon his name. So it begins with God calling sinners into himself. In Genesis chapter 6, Verse 13, God speaks to Noah and commands him to build an ark. And guess what? What does Noah do? So you read in Genesis 6, 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. 
God's call of Noah in the drama of redemption is triumphant. Noah loves the voice of God calling him to live for him, to forsake the world, and now follow after the Lord of the universe. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, we read in verses 1 through 4, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that will show you. And then it says in verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Wait a sec. God commands, and what does Abram do? He obeys. Know that God comes to Abram and calls him out of the darkness and idolatrous lifestyle of Ur. And the Lord becomes so attractive that Abram can do nothing but follow God. And sometimes, I, I, I mentioned that, sometimes we have this idea that before God called Abraham, he was this pious, godly man uh, having worship service at his house. No, he was an idolater. Joshua says, look at that, Joshua 24, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Ahor. And they served, look at that, and they served other gods. <gasps> they were all idol worship. And look how it says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. He pulled Abraham by his irresistible grace, triumphant call, out of that dark place. Scott Hefman, he says, God did not rescue Abram from idolatry because of who Abraham was, but in spite of who Abram was. Apart from God's saving acts in his life, Abram would have remained an idol worshiper in Mesopotamia. And if God had not continued graciously to intervene in Abraham's life, that's the perseverance of the saints, he would have died in Haran with his father Terah. So God graciously, irresistibly took Abraham from darkness into light. It's amazing how Paul, when he's speaking about Abraham, he used the language of creation. So in Romans 4, as Paul is describing the life of Abraham, Paul says that, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead, and look at that, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Where is Paul bringing this from? Genesis 1 and 2, creation account. And he now applying to Genesis 12 through 25, the life of Abraham. Peter Gentry and Wellam, they say, Therefore, according to the New Testament, as we read the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25, we are supposed to view, to view the call of Abraham as a kind of new creation. Yeah, just as the divine word in Genesis 1-3 brings into being and existence things that are not, so in Genesis 12-3, it's the divine word that brings into existence a new order out of the chaos resulting from the confusion and curse of Babel, the condition of the world just prior to Genesis 12. It's the mighty call of God in Abraham's life 
as if there is a new creation out of the chaos of ba- the, the Tower of Babel. There is a new creation by the power of his irresistible and triumphant call in his life. And we know the effectual call, irresistible grace, is always following after unconditional election and limited atonement, as we saw earlier. We also see how God took Israel graciously, irresistibly, out of Egypt. So in Exodus 19, we read, You yourselves, verse 4 and 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Who brought them out of the darkness of Egypt? He did. God did. God took them. God pulled them out of that place. There's a beautiful connection as we think about Exodus 19 and 20 as God is creating Israel as a new, as a picture of a new creation, a new Adam. And then in chapter 20 of Exodus, you have the ten, we call the ten commandments. It's actually the ten words. And it's following the pattern of Genesis 1 where you have ten words of creation. And God said, and God said, and God said. And that's a parallel showing that now, the same way that God created through His Word, He's recreating now by the power of His Word. And that's what happens in our lives. As God speaks His Word to us, He transforms us out of death into life, out of an old creation into a new creation. We could go to Samuel chapter 3, where God calls Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And once Samuel hears the voice of the Lord, he can do nothing but to serve the Lord his whole life. And the great psalm that we read earlier, beautiful psalm, Psalm 65. When iniquities prevail against me, you, what? Atone. You atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Right there you have the three points. Atonement, election, and a call. Bringing. Blessed is the person whom God chooses and brings near to dwell in His presence. The fruit of election is not only forgiveness provided, but forgiveness applied and life in God's presence. And we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Think about the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah, he thought that he could escape the call of God, right? Remember Jonah, he thinks that he can escape the call of God. He can't. God makes a gigantic fish, a whale to swallow him. And he doesn't... He's so bad that he gives the whale a heartburn. And the whale literally has to throw up that man on the shores... He's bitter. He doesn't want to do what God called him to do. And yet he goes. God called him. He goes. And he calls the Ninevites to repent. And by the vocatio verbalis, the call of the preacher, God produces the vocatio vicax. And there is a massive revival in Nineveh. As people hear the proclamation of a God who is righteous, holy, and merciful, they repent. 
What is amazing is that God's effective call is so triumphant in Jonah's story that he used a lukewarm, rebellious, and bitter preacher to accomplish his purposes. And many of us here have been saved through preachers who are not the best of preachers. But the Holy Spirit was there to effect regeneration in us despite the human preacher's limitation. Amen? Underneath, over, behind the preacher's call was the calling of the Holy Spirit, the greatest preacher of all. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Time literally flies. <laughs> In Ezekiel 36 and 37, you start seeing Ezekiel speaking of a new covenant, the days that are coming when the Lord will make a new covenant. And this new covenant is expressing in a better exodus. There will be a better exodus because the exile is not going to be from Egypt or Babylon, but it's going to be from sin and death and Satan. And in, in, in Ezekiel 36, you can see starting in verse 22, it's all God's promise. And I invite you to read that at home and see how often God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I mean, it's God who is going to accomplish that. The new work. The work of bringing life to the dead. Rescuing those who are in exile. And then in Ezekiel 37, we have the well-known vision of the valley of dry bones. And the whole picture there is of a creation. There will be a new creation. We think about exile. They talk about God's people in exile. And exile is a picture of death. Away from God's presence. And we have a picture of a spiritual resurrection where the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the breath of God, through the Word of God, will bring life into those who are in the graveyard of sin. So the whole language that the New Testament uses of being born again, regeneration, is drawn from the Old Testament expectation that we would come out, out of the grave to life, out of the grave of sin and condemnation, and now to a life of Joy in God's presence. That's where it's coming, the language of being born again, new life. And as you go to the New Testament, we see how the New Testament authors are showing that great ex- the day that they were expecting so eagerly now has come with Jesus Christ. The day of the new creation has been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why the church is the called ones, those who are called out of the graveyard of sin and exile, and now they have the Spirit of God within them as a new creation. And as we go, just starting the New Testament, and I will stop right here. As we start the New Testament, we see how this doctrine of effectual call, irresistible grace, is not something hidden, it's all in the open. So many of the letters of the New Testament, they open by reminding us, by reminding all of us that we have been called by grace alone. So look at that. Romans 1. Just the opening of the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, including you who are what? Called to Jesus Christ. 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and are what? Called saints. Galatians 1.6 I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Or 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and what? Called us to a holy calling. Look at that. Not because of our works. Not because you believed. Some people think that you become a called one because you believe. No, look at what Paul says. You believe because you are a called one. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. As we continue, you see in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great, great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Look at that, regeneration. The fruit of the call. And then he says in verse 15, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy. Or Second Peter 1. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellency. Or Jude 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. Look at that. Called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Called, beloved, and kept. So the New Testament letters open reminding us that it's because of God's mercy and grace that we are His people. Because He called us out of darkness. So brothers and sisters, that's the glorious doctrine of irresistible grace. Effectual call. We have a glorious, a gracious, a mighty, a powerful God who conquers our rebellion, our hostility, and our rejection. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that we have a God who not leaves us on our own sins. But He comes to save us. Like with Abraham, He called us out of Ur, Babylon. With a mighty call. Like with Israel, the Spirit of God took us out of the Egyptian slavery. Like with Ezekiel, the Spirit of God breathes life, regenerate us. We who once were in the graveyard of sin and death. And he used that, he does that by the preaching of the word, brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God, the author of the word of God, he used that word to transform people. So do not cease. Do not get tired in proclaiming the good news, in preaching the good news. Because that the means, that is the means that God used to exercise his vocatio efficax, the factual call. So we join our voices with the psalmists. And we say, we sing, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgression. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To do what? To dwell in your courts. We shall, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple.
We are blessed, brothers and sisters. And we are blessed not because we have, not only because we have homes and cars and jobs and healthy bodies, but we are blessed above and beyond all things because He atoned for our sins, He chose us, and He brought us into His home. So, like the slave in the galley. Do you remember the slave in the galley? And the oars. Chain. That's where you were, brother and sister. Death sentence. Putrid. Dark. And yet the captain comes and calls by name. And once he calls by name, you can do nothing but what? Run to his arms. Embrace him and love him. And I pray that today, if you do not know Christ, you have not embraced Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit is using the preaching of his word to draw you in. There is absolutely nothing better than being in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank for your word. Your word is powerful. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration. We thank you that you are a mighty God. We thank you that your grace is greater than our sins. Lord, we thank you that it is your grace from beginning to the end. And we will, we will never comprehend why you chose the ones who were running away from you. And you drew us into your house. To have fellowship with you. And that's why we can sing. Our chains fell off. My, our hearts were set free. We rose and forth and followed thee. Because you came to that dungeon place. And you called us with an irresistible and all glory, solely Deo Gloria, all glory be to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.